Good morning. Let's turn, please, to Luke chapter 6. If you haven't been hit between the eyes by the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ yet from this passage, look out, there's more to come. Luke chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse 37, but before we do, I want to tell you a story about some friends who decided to go to uh, an art gallery together. They decided to have a fun day together and go out and visit an art gallery. One of the men in the group was a perpetual know-it-all. He knew everything about everything. You know people like that? They're experts about everything. And uh, no matter what subject it is, they've got the answer to it. And he always tried to impress his friends with his knowledge about everything and every subject. And this day was going to be no different. So as they went to the art gallery, he reached into his pocket to get his glasses out so he could see the pictures on the wall, and he had left his glasses at home. So everything was just blurry. Well, that wasn't going to stop him from being an expert in every painting and every detail of the painting. And so as he went from room to room, he described what the artist must have seen as he painted this picture and uh, why it really wasn't the greatest picture, you know, that, that he could have done, and the flaws of the picture and everything else like that as he went from there. Everything was a blur to him, of course. He approached one of the frames in the art gallery, and he says, now this, this takes the cake. He says, this is, um, he said, why would anybody paint something as hideous as this? And uh, he said, I mean, it is a true rendering of the, of the object that he painted, But he said, it's grotesque. It's awful. I'm sickened even to look at it. And his friends were howling. They were laughing. And he couldn't understand why they were laughing until his wife leaned over and whispered in his ear, Hon, that's a mirror. (laughs) Jesus, as we have been talking about, has chosen us to be ambassadors uh, in this world. We are to, as ambassadors, we are to represent the king and to represent his interests um, on earth. Now, as we will see from his instruction this morning, the last thing that he wants in ambassadors is a bunch of fakes, a bunch of fakes. We cannot truly represent the king if we act as a self-appointed critic of every person, of every ministry, and of every subject. If we are ambassadors of the king, we need to behave like him. Today, last week we talked about love and loving um, those that love us, loving those who are our family, those who are our brethren, and even loving our enemies. We want to see love in action today. And Paul describes love in action this way. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says this, Love suffers long, And is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love is very practical. And Jesus has much to say about it this morning. And so let's listen in 
as he teaches us, we are the new set of ambassadors. What does he want to teach us? So Luke chapter 6, and we'll read verse 37 first of all. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Jesus said, judge not, and you shall not be judged. I don't know if you know this or not. This is the second most famous verse in all of the Bible. The first one is one we talked about a week or so ago, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. You know that passage. But this is the second most famous, probably the second most quoted verse uh, of, uh, uh, even among unbelievers. Judge not, lest ye be judged. And usually they say that when? When they've been confronted about something that they're doing wrong. Judge not, lest you be judged. Second most quoted verse in all of the Bible. Now, what does the Lord mean, judge not, lest you be judged? The Lord is not suggesting here that we suspend all judgment. That's not what he's talking about. We are to judge certain things. For example, I don't know if you had it in, this, in the class this, uh, this morning or not, but in uh, Corinthians it talks about how we are to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The idea there is that we aren't to enter into a marriage, an unbeliever with a believer, or a believer with an unbeliever. We're not to enter into a business transaction, believer, you know, join as partners in, in a business uh, setting, believers with unbelievers. We're not to um, be yoked together in religious matters, believers with unbelievers. And so we are to judge in that sense who are believers and who are not believers. Uh, we're to judge between what is right and what is wrong. We're even to judge sin in the church, and there's very specific instructions about that. But the word judge in this verse means to pronounce judgment or condemnation. It means that even though God has sent us out into the world to be his ambassadors, to be his representatives, he has not given us the right to be the judge of all the earth. Okay? Uh, we don't have the authority to judge all the earth. Do you remember the occasion when a woman was caught in the very act of adultery? And the Pharisees and, and the men uh, dragged her out into the street, and because the law said that they could, they picked up stones to stone her to death. That was the consequence of being caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus reached down on his, uh, uh, bent down on the ground, and he began to write on the ground. And as he wrote on the ground, the crowds dispersed. And there was just him and the woman. And as he looked at the woman, he says, Woman, where are your accusers? He was the only one left. And he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, we often sit in judgment and we condemn people for their behavior when we do the very same thing ourselves. You who condemn murder, have you ever hated someone in your heart? You who condemn adultery, have you ever lusted in your heart? You who condemn thieves, have you ever stolen time or supplies from your employer? Paul said in Romans chapter 2, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge 
practice the same things. There was a group of men who were being led led out to execution. The the year was um, 1555, and there was a man who was a prisoner, and he was in a tower uh, near London, in, in the prison in the tower. And as he watched this group of men being taken out to be executed, he said a very famous phrase that we still quote today. He said, but for the, there, but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. That's how he worded the phrase. That's how he phrased it. And we now say, there, but for the grace of God, go I. And the idea there is that as we look at the lives of other people and the situations that they're in, the consequences of their life, we can often say, there, but for the grace of God, go I. And yet we are so quick to judgment and we are so slow to mercy. What if we had been raised in an atheistic society? Would we be different than we are today? What if we had been abused as a child? What if we had grown up in utter poverty? What if we had been abandoned as a child? What if we had been born into slavery? What if we had not known the love of godly parents? Would it be different for us today? Like the woman caught in adultery, would we have been arrested, condemned, and been ready to be stoned? There, but for the grace of God, go I. The Lord has not sent us to go out as his ambassadors to be the judge and jury and prosecuting attorney of everybody that we meet. Now, it's not to ignore sin, and it's not to excuse sin away. I'm not suggesting that. But the, fact, the thing is this, knowing our own sins, don't you think we should have a little more mercy for sinners just like us? I think so. Let us show mercy to fellow sinners and let us win them, not by judging them, but by loving them. There was a, there's a man, his name is Jim Simbala. He's a pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City. Um, and uh, he tells a story on himself. It was Easter Sunday, he says, and I was so tired after, uh, it was the end of the day, I had had a full day of ministry, of preaching, of teaching, and uh, I just didn't want to talk to anybody, he says. And so at the end of my message, he came off to the edge of the platform, and he sat down on the edge of the platform with his feet hanging over. He loosened his tie, and he just sat there, and he says, you know what, I saw the ushers and those who had been trained working with people who had come forward that day, and he thought, I'm just going to rest here and just watch. And so he sat there uh, as, as he watched. And as he was sitting there, he looked down the middle aisle and about three or four rows back, he saw a man looking at him. And uh, he was filthy. He was disheveled. Uh, about 50 years old, he thought. And he looked up at me rather sheepishly, Jim said, as if saying, could I talk to you? He says, you know, we have homeless people coming into the church all the time asking for money, asking for a handout. So as I sat there, I said to myself, he said, though I'm ashamed of it, what a way to end a Sunday. I've had such a good time today preaching and teaching and ministering, and here this fellow probably wants a few dollars so that he can go out and buy some more wine or some drugs. 
Well, he walked up, and when he got within about five feet of me, he said, I smelled a horrible smell. I'd never smelled anything like that in my life. It was so awful. And when he got close, he said, I would have to turn my head and inhale sideways so that I didn't bring in any of the smell. And then I would talk to him until I was out of breath, and then I'd inhale sideways again. I said to him, what's your name? He said, David. I said, how long have you been on the street? Six years. How old are you, David? 32. He looked 50. Hair matted, front teeth missing. He was a wino, eyes slightly aglazed. Where'd you sleep last night, David? In an abandoned truck. So Jim said, I, I keep my money in my back pocket, and I reached to my back pocket to pull out a few bills. He said, usually we don't give money to people who just come in and ask like that, but he thought, I'm just so tired. The easiest way is just give him a few bucks, and that's the end of this. And so I reached in to my pocket, and I was going to hand him some money to get something to eat. And David pushed his hand in front of me, and he said, I don't want your money. He says, I want your Jesus. The one you were talking about, he said, because I'm not going to make it. He says, I'm going to die on the street. Jim said, you know what? I forgot completely about David, and I started to weep for myself. I was going to give a couple of dollars to somebody who wanted the Lord, who wanted salvation. You see how easy it is? I could make the excuse I was tired, but there is no excuse. I was not seeing him the way God was seeing him. But, oh, did that change? David just stood there. He didn't know what was happening. He saw me crying, and I was pleading with God, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, please. I'm so sorry to represent you this way. I'm so sorry. Here I am with all of my message and my three-point outline, and here you send somebody who's ready to know you. And something came over me, he said. Suddenly I started to weep deeper. And then David began to weep. And he fell against my chest, and I was sitting there, and he fell, he said, against my white shirt and my tie. And I put my arms around him, and there we wept on each other. The smell of his person became a beautiful aroma to me. Someone else has said as a postscript that David came to know the Lord that day. And uh, though he uh, was saved... He went through detox, and he, began, he became a preacher himself. You know, if we could only press the rewind button of our lives, don't you remember when one day you were just like David? Yet the Lord saved you. The Lord saved me. Who are we to condemn others? Next, I believe that as ambassadors of the king, we are not to look down our theological noses and judge the motives and service of other ambassadors of the king. We do not have omniscience. We don't know everything. We can't read the mind or the heart of our fellow servants. And we are not to judge, the scripture says this, another servant of the Lord as far as their stewardship or as far as their service is concerned. We must not have a critical spirit. You say, well, I have discernment. Well, it's good. 
Discernment taken to a faulty end is a critical spirit. And those who are consistent fault finders will find the Lord whispering in their ear, just as the man's wife did in the art gallery, John. It's a mirror. It's a mirror. And oftentimes we see flaws or faults in other people. And we're seeing ourselves in the mirror. In the late 1800s, there was a great preacher in England. You've heard of him. His name was Charles Spurgeon. He's often referred to as the Prince of Preachers, even to this day. Spurgeon also ran a, um, a Bible school for up-and-coming preachers and to teach them how to t- uh, teach and preach the Word of God. At the same time in history in America, there was another great gospel preacher. His name was Dwight L. Moody. And uh, they were a little different theologically, the two of them, um, but still servants of the Lord. Moody was invited to England, and there in England he was to... Uh, to, he actually attracted large crowds of people, uh, and he preached the gospel, and the Lord saved many, many people wondrously. And um, some people objected to Moody, and it seemed like many uh, in the churches were judging his ministry. Someone said that one of Spurgeon's students came up to Spurgeon one day in the middle of all of this, and he said, Mr. Spurgeon, do you think you're going to see Mr. Moody in heaven? Spurgeon thought about it for a moment. He said, I don't think so. And the student went, huh, felt very justified in his condemnation of of, uh, Mr. Moody. But Spurgeon wasn't finished. He said, I don't think I'll see Moody in heaven. You see, I think Moody is going to be so close to the Lord and I'll be so far away that I won't see Mr. Moody in heaven. He'll be close to the Lord. And I'll be far away. As ambassadors, the next thing that the Lord teaches us is in verse 38. It has to do with releasing the grasping hand. You know, I have seven children, and I was there for the birth of all seven of my children. And there's a very interesting thing. There were some things that were quite different in each birth, but there was one thing in all of the births that was completely consistent. Every single one of my children was born with a clenched fist. <laughs> I'm not sure if they were resisting me, but I, I think that's just the way the hands are. They clench. And, you know, you often take the child's hand and you open it up and then they, they grasp your hand. And we go through life as people with clenched fists, with grasping hands, and we seem to want to get everything out of life that we can, grabbing for everything we can. We are called consumers And one of the hardest lessons for us to learn and the hardest lessons for us to teach is the lesson on giving. If we are going to be effective as ambassadors, we must learn this lesson well. We represent the king. And everything we have belongs to the king, whether it's our homes, our assets, our food, our clothing, whatever it is, it all belongs to him. The Bible says this, The earth is the Lord's, in all its fullness, everything belongs to Him. And yet we hold on to things as if we possess them, as if they were ours. If we represent the King, we must be like Him of whom it was said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He were rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich." What do we really know 
about becoming poor to make others rich. What do we know about that? And yet, that is on the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Why? Why are we to give? Well, because we're representing the king who gives and gives and then gives again. And when we do the same, we show that we have a family resemblance. We resemble him. In fact, Matthew 5.45 says about this very thing, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Thank God for the rain this weekend, huh? But uh, it was interesting as I was watching it come down, it was hitting every house. It was hitting every yard. He wasn't being restrictive and saying, okay, I'm only going to have it rain on the Christian homes and the Christian yards and the Christian cars. I'm just going to let it rain on everybody. He gives and gives and gives again. How are we to give? Well, you tell me, how are we to give? It says this in, in 2 Corinthians. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Give, give, give. You know, we can't outgive God. Try it sometime. Just try it. I dare you. Give him a thimble full, and he'll give you a cup full back. Give him a cup full, and he'll give you a bucket back. Give him a bucket, and you'll end up with a 45 gallon drum. Give him a 45 gallon drum, and he'll send you an ocean. It's the way God is. It's not to give to get, okay? I'll tell you a little story about that. There was a young man who came to one of his elders one day, and he says, man, I just landed my first job. I'm in college, and I got this job. It's part-time, but hey, who cares? It's money that I can make. And he says, I'm earning $200 a week. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about it, and I want to tithe 10% of everything I earn. Uh, will you pray to the Lord for me that the Lord would bless me in this? And the elder agreed. He would, he would pray. And the young man, bless his heart, he gave $20 a week, 10% of everything he took in every week, 10%, $20. Well, a few years later, he graduated from college, and he landed a, a much better job. And uh, it was a high-paying job. He had done very well in school for himself. And, and his first job out of college, he was getting over $100,000 a year in income. He was earning $2,000 a week. No longer 200, now 2,000 a week. Wow. He came back to the elder and he said, you know, I just want to thank you for praying for me all these years. And he said, um, but I don't think I can tithe 10% anymore. And he said, well, why not? He said, well, <laughs> are you kidding me? He said, that would mean I would be giving $200 a week to the Lord. And that's just too much. Will you pray for me? And the elder thought for a minute and he said, yeah, I'll pray for you. I'll pray that the Lord will give you back your $200 a week job. Because <laughs> he said, you didn't seem to have much trouble giving 20 then. Proverbs eleven twenty four says this. 
There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is his right, and it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. It's about stewardship. And if we are ambassadors representing the king and the king's interests, then the money, the resources, the assets that we do have do not belong to us. The question is, are we being faithful in the stewardship that he has given to us? Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 39. Here is a parable about religious hypocrites. I'm going to ask you a very personal question. How many of you have ever been a hypocrite? I'm going to put my hand up first. <laughs> if your hand's not up, something wrong. All right. We, we've all shown hypocrisy at some point or another in our lives. And it's the last thing the Lord wants in his ambassadors. It's the last thing. Verse uh, 39. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. We're going to end there for just a minute. So Jesus begins the parable by asking a question. Can the blind lead the blind? It's a rhetorical question. And he answers that question by asking another question. Will they not both fall into the ditch? Yes, they will. Blind leaders of the blind. In Matthew chapter 23, the Lord speaks to the Pharisees, and five times in that chapter, he calls them blind. He calls them blind. He, he really rebukes them for being blind. They were blind leaders of the blind. You see, they really presented themselves to the people as those who represented God, as those who represented the king. But the king is making it very clear in that chapter that they don't represent him at all. They are not his representatives. They're not representing his interests. You see, they made rules for people to follow, and they wouldn't follow them themselves. They were concerned about the externals, and yet they were corrupt inside. They appeared to be moral and upright, but they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And there are many pastors and many religious leaders today who are just like them. Blind leaders of the blind. As, the, as ambassadors representing the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot be like the Pharisees. The Lord has established the pattern. He is the pattern. In John 10, 27, he says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Peter said, we should follow in his steps. And so if you want to not be blind leaders of the blind, then we need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 6.40, he says, A disciple 
is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. We cannot lead people where we do not go, and we cannot teach people what we do not know. Otherwise, we are in danger of being blind leaders of the blind ourselves. If you don't understand a spiritual truth, can you teach someone else what it means? No. If you're unwilling to obey our king, can you really lead others to follow him? No. If we're going to represent him in his interest, we have to be more concerned about things that Jesus said uh, to the Pharisees. He said that they need to be concerned about things like justice and mercy and faith and not the outward trappings of religion. See, we don't simply come here on Sunday morning to punch a clock and say, okay, I've done my religious duty for the week, and now go out and live any way I feel like. You can only bring a person to the spiritual level that you're at yourself. That's where the train stops. This is true in teaching anything. If you want to teach a student how to read, you have to know how to read. If you want to teach a musical instrument or a trade or math or science or anything, You have to know the subject if you're going to teach it and have uh, students learn. And you can only bring a student to your level. Well, it's also true in the spiritual realm. We tend to like, well, we, we, we like to pretend that we're further ahead in spiritual things than we are. We really do. And all of us are short of the goal, including the preacher which is to be perfectly trained so that we are like our teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. And it's our aim to bring you closer to him. I think of what Paul said to the Philippians. He said, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. It's a soul-searching statement. But the soul-searching question is, what do we see in the lives of those who teach us. Can we emulate them and be more like the Lord Jesus? Jesus also warned against the dangers of hypocrisy in Luke 6, uh, 41. He says, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and you'll see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. A few weeks ago, I was out in the uh, new chapel building over here, and the uh, contractors were here, and uh, I was cutting some pieces of wood with my safety glasses. They're not safety glasses. I should have had safety glasses on, and as I was pushing some wood through the um, table saw, the dust came up, and it, it got into my eye. So I was able to stop the, the saw okay, and I was working the sawdust out of my eye, and... Um, Nobody came to help me, so it wasn't exactly like this verse. But can you imagine me sitting there trying to get this speck out of my eye and one of the contractors coming up with a two-by-four sticking out of his eye, you know, telephone pole. And um, let me help you get that little speck out of your eye. How about if you take the pole out of your eye first? And that's the the hyperbole uh, that Jesus is presenting here. The idea is that it's, it's, it's an exaggeration. We, and he does this to get his point across. 
how can we help fellow believers with a problem in their life when we have the very same problem in our life but in an exaggerated degree? It makes no sense. It's hypocrisy. Your own marriage is falling apart. But you see, you know, a couple in the assembly here who, you know, you can tell they're, they're you know, not quite seeing eye to eye together while they're sitting here. And you go, how about if we get together this afternoon and I give you a little schooling down on, on marriage? And they look at you and go, are you kidding me? How can you help me when, you've got, when your own marriage is a train wreck? Uh, you know, you think about a person who is teetering on the verge of bankruptcy and uh, the house is about to be foreclosed. You see a sister who can't buy birthday presents for her own kids and you say, oh, dear sister, why don't we get together this week and I'll, I'll teach you the finer points of budgeting. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you know, I think about in any area of the Christian walk, you know, when a person doesn't, you know, they're, they're absent from most of the meetings of the church and they uh, are not sharing the gospel with anybody, any of their friends, any of their coworkers. They're not involved in any kind of ministry. They're not exercising their spiritual gift in any way. And they say to their son or their daughter, hey, let me tell you about the will of God for your life. Get real. You know, and every time we hear, hear that or see that, duck because that plank is about to hit you, okay? Now, Jesus isn't trying to discourage us from helping other people, but there's a priority here, and the priority is this. First, take care of the beam in your own eye, okay? He wants us to all be like him, and so if we've got the same sin in an exaggerated form, take care of it. Do business with God. Deal with that issue. And then you can see clearly to help someone in need. For the job of ambassador, hypocrites need not apply. Next, the Lord emphasizes that what a man is in reality will ultimately come out in what he says. Let's take a look at that. Luke 6, 43. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit, by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks." I have a number of fruit trees in my yard. I have some apple trees. And uh, one thing I've learned about my apple trees, they always bear apples. I have some citrus trees, lemon. And one thing I've learned about them is that they always bear lemons. It's in the DNA of the lemon tree to produce lemons. It's in the nature of the apple tree to produce apples. Even though it's winter right now and the leaves on the apple tree have all fallen off, eventually when the spring comes and uh, the nature of the tree will come out in its fruit and it will bear apples once again. 
The same thing is true of people, too. If a person is truly born again, you will be able to tell. Not by the fact that he shows up here on Sunday morning, but by what comes out of his mouth. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's interesting, you know, that a man's speech will eventually give him away. It will eventually show you his true heart condition. For you young people, I want to give you a word of advice, okay? If you think you have found Mr. Right or Miss Wonderful, listen over a period of time to how they talk because eventually what's truly in their heart will come out. We just can't help ourselves. It's in our nature, and we tend to spill out eventually what we're really like in our speech. That's what Jesus is saying here. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James 1.26 says this, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Finally, in Luke 6.46, the Lord says this, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Can you imagine one who is sent to another country as an ambassador and never follows the, uh, the, the instruction of the one who sent him? That makes no sense. Why is he there as an ambassador? He is supposed to be representing the king. He is supposed to be representing the king's interests. And this is what Jesus is saying here too. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. If we are representing him, we should do what he says. But Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord? Lord, and do not do the things which I say. Jesus has spoken to us this morning through his word. And uh, as we read the scripture and we hear what he has to say, we are faced with a choice. He compares those who hear his word to builders, to builders. Those who hear him and follow his instructions are like those who build a house and they make sure the foundation of that house is on terra firma. It's, it's on bedrock, solid rock. The house is an illustration of our life. You are building your life. Are you building your life on a solid foundation? But the builder who hears him and does nothing or ignores his words or excuses away his bad behavior, disregards his commands, he's also building a home, but there's no foundation. The foundation, the home is sitting on sand. Are you building your house on sand? Here's what happens. A violent storm comes, Jesus said. And what is the storm? It's the winds of adversity in our life. The flood of temptation that comes our way. Trials that we face as believers. And in this test of life, you either stand or you fall. Those who have chosen to obey the word of God and follow his instructions 
will stand or endure the storms of life. But those who have chosen to ignore the words of Jesus will collapse under the test. I thank God for tests in our life. Nobody likes to go through them. But they reveal who we are. They reveal whether we really are representing the king and his kingdom. He has called us to be his ambassadors. Who is on the Lord's side? We're going to sing a song. We sing it. uh, It is who is on the Lord's side. Um, What number is that, by the way? Did anybody uh, look it up? Say it again. 584. Okay, so 584 in the red book. Go ahead, Amy. We're just going to sing the first verse. And I don't know if we can do this. I don't know if it's legal or not. But we're going to change a word in here. Okay? 584. It says, Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers? I'm going to just change that. We're going to sing it as ambassadors. So as helpers is two, word, two syllables. Ambassadors. I don't know if that's three or four. I can't figure that out yet. Okay, it's a few, but you've got to really say it fast to get it in there, okay? So why don't we stand? We'll sing 584, and then we'll close in prayer. Just the one verse, and just change that one word, Okay. on the Lord's side, who will serve the King, who will be His ambassadors, other lives to bring, who will leave the world's side, who will face the foe, who is on the Lord's side, who for Him will go. By thy call of mercy, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side, Savior, we are thine. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we consider your words this morning, we realize that uh, the call to be ambassadors is a high calling. It is a great and noble work, Lord, and we just pray that you might prepare us and make us uh, ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, ones who represent you honestly, without hypocrisy, uh, that we would represent you and represent your cause uh, in this world. And we pray, Lord, that you might show us areas in our own life. Lord, if we have um, planks in our own eye, Lord, help us to see that, that we might be able to remove these things from us, that we might be able to be of help and encouragement Uh, to others. And we cry out to you, Lord, that you might uh, help us day by day to build our house on the solid rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.